week number 11 of the Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Another consequential week behind us, yet another consequential week ahead. Trump almost takes us to war with Iran. Joe Biden gets into a little bit of trouble. Interesting stuff. All right, let's start the show. We are now the defenders of the stronghold of democracy and of equal opportunity. You and I as citizens have the obligation to shape the debates of our time, not only with the votes we cast, but with the voices we lift. The people are looking for honest answers, not easy answers. The very word secrecy is repugnant. Clear leadership. And we are as a people. Not false claims and evasiveness and politics as usual. Opposed to secret society. But ours was a nation of the battle, not the bullet. And a secret procedure. As a people, we cannot afford to let any group of citizens or any individual citizens live or labor under conditions which are injurious to the Commonwealth. Black, white, Latino, Asian, Native American, young, old, gay, straight, men, women, folks with disabilities, all pledging allegiance under the same proud flag to this big, bold country that we love. That's what I see. That's the America I know. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. There is nothing wrong with America that cannot be cured by what is right with America. All right. So where do we start? I think I got to start with Iran, right? I mean, how can I not? We got a president who has campaigned against stupid wars and a president who likes to create problems, crises, if you will. And then he says, look, I solved the crisis. I, I turned back the planes. He, you know, he's saying he didn't turn back the planes. He's saying that uh, once he was just, once he learned that 150 people would likely die in any assault on Iran, he decided not to do it. Now, look, 150—that's the tip of the iceberg. We go to a long-range war with Iran. Iran is a nation of 89 million people who, you know, are kind of annoyed that they entered into a treaty with us, and we just decided unilaterally to get out of that treaty. So there's a a lot of anger going on right now in Iran and it's anger that is you know just not necessary the international community was very clear that Iran was abiding by the terms of the nuclear deal that we signed during the Obama administration the president decided well if obama did it it can't be good so he decides to just change his mind and just eliminate the entire deal at least the United States involvement in the deal. And, and now we've reinstituted sanctions, which have, which have really destroyed the economy of Iran. They are getting frustrated. They shot down one of our drones. Now they claim it was in their airspace. We claim it was international airspace. Of course, we don't trust the president of the United States. So uh, hard for us to, to know what is true and what is not. Now I'm happy that the president decided not to go to war with Iran. But let me be very clear. This is not the president's decision alone. This is Congress's decision. Congress is the one who has to declare war. The president is not authorized to use force against Iran. The authorization that uh, that the United States has been operating under since 9-11, which led to the Iraq War and the War of Afghanistan, 
are authorizations that do not extend to new conflicts around the world. Now, they could call Iran uh, a terrorist organization, and you've seen the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and John Bolton, the chicken hawk that he is, you know, and I'm going to talk about him uh, in, in a little bit more detail in a second, uh, you know, going around the world trying to tie Iran to terrorist actions against the United States that have been claimed by other terrorist organizations that have been claimed by groups that have nothing to do with Iran and, and quite frankly, might be enemies of Iran. So, you know, trying to, to fit them into that box is a real problem. But let me explain this to you, Mr. President, in no uncertain terms. If you go to war with Iran without consulting Congress, you will have committed a crime. But more than that, you will be responsible for whatever comes from that war. It's all on you. The buck stops with you. You can't blame Mike Pompeo. You can't blame John Bolton. You, sir, are the commander-in-chief of the armed forces of this country. So if you make this decision and you don't bring Congress in, it's all you, nobody else. A robust debate in Congress will help you politically in a big way. It might put some pressure on some of your opponents to support it. I don't think they should, but they might. It will frame the issues in ways that the United States, that the American people of this country will understand. Right now, you know, it's basically you. It's your people saying we should do it. And there are a lot of people around the world, including some people in your own party, not a lot, that think it's a bad idea. But let's be clear here. You know, uh, you know, John Bolton, the president's national security advisor, who I know, by the way, I've been on television with him many times. I've been in many green rooms with him. I did a show called Red Eye with him a couple times. And those of you who remember Red Eye, that's an hour-long show that's kind of comical. And I sat next to him both times for an hour, talked to him. I don't find him, let me put it this way, I find him very serious. I did not find him very funny when he was on Red Eye. Uh, I also found that he was a little over the top on things he should not be over the top on, particularly the Clintons. And I've mentioned this before. I think that his problems with Bill and Hillary Clinton date back to law school. And I think he might have tried to date Hillary Clinton. I, I don't know for sure. It's just the way I feel about it. They knew each other. They were in the same sort. How many people are at Yale Law School at the same time, graduated the same year, are the same age, and come out with the same, you know, hating each other? There, there's something, there's some there there, okay? I don't know what it is. It, it's never been discussed. Uh, I did not discuss this with him, but there's something about it. But this is a guy who's never met a country he didn't want to invade, never saw a war he didn't think should be started. This guy will lead this country into World War III. The president of the United States who campaigned, and one of the things I agreed with the president on was that the Iraq war was stupid. Biggest mistake George W. Bush ever made. Biggest mistake Congress ever made, allowing it to go forward. I agreed with Donald Trump on that. He was right on that. You know, just because he's an idiot and I don't, you know, I don't agree with him being president. I don't like the fact that he's president. Doesn't mean he's always wrong. But during the campaign, that was a thing he was right about. And now he brought the guy who led us down that path, John Bolton into his inner circle to help lead us down that path again. And he's trying to do that right now with Iran. He has wanted to invade Iran since he was in law school, America. This is a guy who thinks the Shah should be restored in Iran 
And America should do everything we can to do that. He should not be the person advising the president on these things. He should not be the person going around the world and trying to make the case. The president should fire John Bolton right now. Fire him right now. He's a chicken hawk who wants to go to war. And if we're going to, you know, if we're going to keep this up, if we're going to go to war, the Congress needs to be involved. And let me tell you something, Mr. President, they're not going to listen to John Bolton. They wouldn't confirm John Bolton for UN secretary back when the Republicans controlled the Senate during the Bush administration. It's not going to happen. Now, granted, there was a filibuster back then and, you know, people played by a different set of rules than they do today. And I don't know what the sheep will do. But I think it's time that the sheep, you know, look up from their glass of Kool-Aid and understand that the president is failing in a lot of key ways. One of the ways he's failing is this stupid war stuff. We are really in an escalatory uh, footing right now. All of the ships in, in that strait, Something bad could happen just by accident. So we've got to be very, very careful. But look up from your Kool-Aid, Trump supporters. Just look up for a second. Don't don't drink it just yet. Or you, many of you have already drank it. But, you know, one of his signature goals was immigration and building a wall. Well, more people are coming to this country now illegally than they ever have before. The border is in crisis. I think it's a humanitarian crisis, but it's a crisis of his own making. The conditions he's 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 leaving children in at the border are inhumane. And I know everybody's up in arm that Alexandria Ocasio Cortez called it a concentration camp. And you know, I don't I look, I'm I'm the grandson of of Holocaust survivors. Ninety percent of my you know, Jewish family, side of my family, got wiped out during the Holocaust in, in concentration camps. Not a word I would use. Mostly because I don't want to have these guys come back at me with this nonsense that they've been doing the last couple of weeks about how we're out of touch. No, bad things are happening in those camps. They are horrible conditions for people, and they are conditions that everyone around this country should be ashamed that this president has allowed to exist especially if you are an evangelical Christian who's out there right now marching on some picket line about abortion. You should be really caring about these kids who are dying in horrible conditions in these camps. Calling it concentration camps just makes it some crazy argument on Fox, right? That's it. That's why you shouldn't use that term. Is it the definition of a concentration camp, is there a difference between concentration camps and death camps? Yes. But have the words merge? Yes. All copiers are not Xerox anymore, but we still say go Xerox things. All bleach is not Clorox, but we always say get me the Clorox. When you think of concentration camps, you think of Nazi Germany. You think of the death camps. So we have to be careful because these people are so great at taking the smallest little slight and turning it into a national debate that is different from the debate we should be having, which is the, the debate about the conditions in those camps at the border. We shouldn't be having a debate about the word concentration camp. So it is a mistake because we live in an environment where everybody wants to get retweets and likes. And this is something that will fire people up. The news will report about it. And they'll report about this more than they'll talk about the kids dying because they don't have drinking water or toilet paper and they haven't showered in four weeks. It's devastating to me. It is not something that we as Americans should allow to exist in our nation.
Yet it does. Yet it does, America. It's sad. And we should all be fighting against it. Ugh. And we are. Right? We're looking for new leaders in this country. And the Democrats are engaged in their primary. And uh, the first debate is later this week. Can't wait to watch that. I'll be talking about it all next week on my pod. Make sure you're subscribing so you get it right in your inbox. And don't forget, you could tweet at me, at Christopher Hahn is my Twitter handle. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-H-A-H-N. It's not Chris Hahn. That was taken. So I'm Christopher Hahn on Twitter. Um, the guy who actually has Chris Hahn uh, is friends of mine on Twitter. I don't know him, but he gets a lot of hate tweets from me from Fox News. And I told him once, you know, it's not all bad. Barack Obama is following him. And I think he thinks that he was following me. So pretty sure he's not following that Chris Hahn on purpose. <laughs> so let me talk a little bit about this uh, primary. It's been a rough week for Biden. Now, look, I think it's okay that Joe Biden wants to talk about how he can work with the other side. In fact, I think that's admirable. I think I think everybody should be trying to work with the other side, even though I think the other side is just, you know, like I said, they're a cult now. They are not really a political party at the moment. Maybe that'll change. Maybe when Trump's gone, that'll change. I don't know. But right now they're a cult and they're, they, you know, look, I think they were a cult before Donald Trump. I think Mitch McConnell was a cult leader before Donald Trump. I mean, just look at the Merrick Garland situation. He stole a Supreme Court judge just because he could. So yeah, I think they're a bit of a cult and they're hard to work with. And I think Mitch McConnell, the Mitch McConnell that Joe Biden knew when Joe was a senior senator and Mitch McConnell was a junior senator, uh, does not exist anymore, Joe. Maybe you could bring it back. I don't know. I'd like to see you try. I get it. But when you talk about people you worked with from the other side, first of all, don't talk about racist segregationists. They're not good people. I get it. He didn't call you boy, but there's a reason he didn't call you boy. We can't be talking about good times with these good old boys. These guys were bad people who did bad things with the power that this country gave them. There are plenty of Republicans you could have pointed to who were not racist segregationists. You could have talked about Bob Dole, who was a lot of things, but I didn't think he was a racist segregationist. You worked with him on a lot of things too. So I don't understand why you went off on it. Now, now we get into the situation this back and forth with Cory Booker about should he apologize? Shouldn't he apologize? Uh, Look, I hate this type of politics. I get why Cory Booker's doing it. I mean, he's, he's nowhere in the polls. This has been hit the most attention he's gotten uh, you know, on any issue since he's entered the presidential race. I, I appreciate the need for him to go and try to make that splash. And Joe Biden said, I'm not going to apologize for anything. Cory Booker should apologize. I hate this. You should apologize. I don't think he should apologize. I think he should stop thinking that way. I think he should acknowledge that these people were racist segregationists and he had to sometimes make deals with them when he was in the Senate, which is something you had to do. And, and by the way, it's something people did because I don't think that the people that are in the Senate and the, and the, uh, and the, you know, I don't believe that Republicans and Democrats for the most part are as far apart as they appear politically today. I think they were more far apart. And by the way, the guys Joe Biden were talking about with Democrats, and I'll get into that in a second, um, 
I don't think that conservatives and liberals are as far apart as they appear. I think they were more far apart then for, because of things like segregation and the overt racism of some conservatives in this country. Now, I was on Kennedy last week. I don't know if any of you saw it. Kennedy, the former 90s MTV VJ, icon of the 90s. I do her show. She's very pleasant. I like her a lot. Uh, I was on the panel and this topic came up. And, uh, you know, somebody had to say, well, remember, the Democrats were the racist party. They were against uh, ending slavery and they were for Jim Crow. Yes. And, you know, guys like, will you acknowledge it? And I'm like, yeah, I'll acknowledge it. Up until 1968, when the liberals and the Democratic Party split from the Southern Democrats and the parties realigned. Northern Republican liberals became Democrats and Southern conservative Democrats became Republicans. So yes, I will acknowledge that prior to 1968, the Democratic Party was a racist party that had racists at the helm for the most part. Not all. There was that split between the North and the South. But will Republicans acknowledge that Even today, like at the Trump campaign launch, the Proud Boys, a neo-fascist racist organization, marched proudly into the Trump presidential launch in Orlando, Florida. Now, will they acknowledge that the Proud Boys are part of the conservative Republican coalition that elected Donald Trump today? Because I'll acknowledge what the Democrats party was before Uh, 1968, before Nixon developed the Southern strategy with a wink and a nod to racism in the South. I'll acknowledge it fully, but I want them to acknowledge what's going on in the Republican Party today. That the Republican Party coalition that gets them elected includes, and I'm not saying everybody, America, please, 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 please understand. I don't think everybody in the Republican Party are racists, but I do think that all racists are Republicans at this point. I don't think that racists are thinking about the Democrats from the 1850s. I think racists are thinking about the Republicans from 2016. It's a big difference. Doesn't mean they're all racists. Doesn't mean all Republicans are racists. It just means that racists, when they join political parties, become Republicans. Like the Proud Boys. When is the president of the United States going to denounce the Proud Boys who show up at his rallies, who threaten people outside his rallies, and then come into his rallies? This neo-fascist organization is racist and they often promote violence. So yeah, I'll acknowledge whatever you want me to acknowledge about the Democratic Party before 1968, which I think is, by the way, it's an idiotic thing that conservatives like to point out It's idiotic. Okay, Charlie Kirk points it out all the time. Charlie Kirk, who who likes to get fake protests in Philadelphia, liked to point it out all the time. Charlie Kirk wasn't alive. By the way, I wasn't alive when the parties realigned. I, I wasn't born until 1971, almost 1972, the end of 1971. The parties realigned in 1968. And there is no doubt today which party supports equal rights and which party honors the segregationist past by doing things like marching for Confederate monuments. You know, the Confederate soldiers that were terrorists in this country, they were terrorizing African-Americans, they rebelled, they committed treason against the United States of America. But yeah, let's put up a statue honoring them. 
I mean, how does that make any sense to anyone other than somebody who's a racist? Yet, you know, Republicans say, well, they got a right to their statues and their history, their history of a failed revolution, of a failed attempt to leave the United States because of you, because you're really, because you're a racist. That was what they were, that's what the Confederacy was about, subjugating one race of people to serve another. And they went to war over that. They decided to rebel, to secede from the United States of America over that. And now there are people in the South and sometimes in the North, but always, but never Democrats, America, who want to honor that past, that racist past with Confederate flags and Confederate monuments. And let me tell you something, you know, if somebody said, you know, my, my great-grandfather was a member of ISIS and I just want to fly the ISIS flag uh, in commemoration of his service to ISIS, which also terrorizes America, how would we react to that? Why is it different? Because they were white? Give me a break. The problem in this country is that Reconstruction didn't last long enough. And we are still suffering in the southern part of this country from the effects of Jim Crow and other things that have kept opportunities down for people of color across the South. And it is sad. It's coming to an end. I feel it's coming to an end. I feel we're coming out of it. And I know it kind of looks like there's this darkness in this country with this president. But I do believe that People are starting to vote in greater numbers in these southern states, and it's only a matter of time before states like Georgia and Texas and North Carolina become solidly purple, if not blue, states. But we got to make sure people vote. We got to fight for every vote. We got to fight for it. All right, that's a lot. I covered a lot there in those uh, couple of minutes. I know I did uh, a couple of topics, but it's going to be an interesting week. I mean, we've got these debates coming up. I can't wait to talk to you some more about those next week. And uh, I'll be on TV a lot talking about it this week. So uh, keep an eye out. Check me out on Twitter. Like I said, at Christopher Hahn on Twitter. All right, I got uh, I got a great guest coming up. Uh, my first guest who also has done a TED Talk, uh, Brian Weisfeld, is, uh, he was part of the original team that took IMAX into the 21st century and really converted it into what it is today. IMAX used to just be in, you know, uh, museums and now it's you know you, you I saw Endgame in IMAX I mean it's 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 fantastic but he's got a great project out right now called the Startup Squad which really encourages young women to get involved in entrepreneurship so I got Brian Westfield right on the other side of this break so stick where you are stick stay where you are I got a great guest here right now Brian Westfield I'm saying this right Brian Westfield has spent his career building businesses, including the IMAX Corporation and Coupons.com, which, by the way, my mother uses. Uh, Brian is the founder of the Startup Squad, an initiative dedicated to empowering girls to reach their potential, whatever their passions, through entrepreneurship, and is the co-author of the Startup Squad, a novel for young girls about this exact topic. Brian, how you doing? Thanks for joining me. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Brian, let's just, you know, I just want to, you know, give my listeners just a taste about your career and your life trajectory. I know you grew up on Long Island, where I am based, and, and that's always good to have a fellow Long Islander in the, in, uh, on the air with me. Uh, but uh, why don't you just, just take us briefly through your career before you got to this point to write this book? 
Yeah, sure. So I've spent my career scaling and building businesses. So uh, in the early 1990s, I was part of a three-person team that bought IMAX, the giant screen movie theater company. At the time, there were probably 75 IMAX theaters in the world. They're all in museums or science centers, and they're showing educational films. But the guys that um, I worked for sort of had this vision that people love to go to IMAX movies. They love seeing movies in IMAX. So why does it have to be a fish film in a museum? Why can't it be the Avengers at the multiplex? Right. So that was the vision, and that's what we turned it into. And actually, the guys I bought it with are, are still running the company today. Um, and then I moved from New York uh, to Silicon Valley oh, about 11 years ago to be the chief operating officer of Coupons.com. The company was probably 100 people uh, when I joined, and was five years later was 500 people, and we had grown the revenue tenfold. And uh, I was looking for the next company to help grow and scale. I've, you know, my career has been spent at the right hand of founders and visionaries. Let them focus on the vision and the product, and I run the day-to-day and help them scale the build, build the business and I was looking for the next company minding my own business when um, when I had this inspiration. That's awesome, man. So, I mean, that that is a great point, right? There's always got to be somebody there who is operating the show. I was the chief deputy county executive of Nassau County. I ran the county while the politician did his thing. Uh, and I know how that goes, man. It's, uh, it's you don't want to do the work. Exactly. Somebody's got to do the work. It's uh, it's a very important thing. Just like here, my producer, Mike, does the work. I just get behind the microphone and, and yap uh, for a little bit. Uh, awesome. So you, 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 uh, you built this career. Where did you go to college? Where did you grow up? Uh, I saw a Massasset High School grad. Spent my, uh, so I grew up on Long Island, and then I uh, went out to University of Michigan for four years, and then right back to New York City, and um, spent my whole adult life in New York City until we moved out here. Excellent, excellent. So, you know, you're a man, so the opportunities were always there for you, right? You were always told you're going to run things, you're going to be the boss. You always probably were, you had that motivation. And now as an adult... You write this book geared at girls because you have daughters. I have daughters too, and we're blessed with daughters. Uh, and and you write this book, The Startup Squad. You found this nonprofit, The Startup Squad. You're working with, with groups like Girls Inc. here in New York uh, to try to encourage women to become entrepreneurs. So why don't you take us through what brought you to that? Yeah, so as you said, I've got two daughters. They're now 13 and 11. At the time, they were uh, 8 and 6. And I watched my older daughter. She was in the Girl Scout, and she was selling cookies for the first time. And also in her second grade class, she was doing a charity bake sale with a friend of hers to raise money for the local food bank. Both times, she was so excited to be doing it. When she was selling those Girl Scout cookies, she put on that vest, and she took a step stool down to the end of her driveway, and she set up our cookies. But then she just stood there. Like she did not know what to do. Right. How to and ask. My wife, yeah. My wife was actually the one that said to her, hey, you know, when people walk by, you got to say good morning to get their attention. And then make sure you look people in the eye when you talk to them. Right. And when she did the, and when she did the charity bake sale, my wife was like, tell people the money goes to charity. Because even if they don't want to buy a brownie, maybe they'll still give you a few bucks. So, I, frankly, I, I was more entertained by the whole thing than right. anything else. So I was like, oh, that's so cute. She doesn't know what to do. Um, but then fast forward, it's a, it's a Sunday morning, June of 2014. I'm laying in bed reading books with my girls. My older daughters on my right side reading from the Who Was series, these biographies for kids that are just, they're awesome. They're so well done. And they've got hundreds of them. It's who was Martin Luther King? It's who was Leonardo da Vinci? Who was Derek Jeter? They're great. So she's sitting there reading Who Was Queen Elizabeth? My younger daughter was in kindergarten, so I was reading to her, and as fate would have it, the book she wanted me to read to her was like the 57th book of the Rainbow Fairy series. Huh. And I just wanted to throw the thing out the window. <laughs> I just, I got tired of what I 
what I consider to be the lowest common denominator marketing to girls. Like right. someone's like, oh, we're gonna we need to make a book series for girls. So let's see, should it be a princess or a fairy or a unicorn? And I don't know. Well, make sure we put a lot of pink on the cover and, and, and off we go. And while I gave the Rainbow Fairies a little bit of credit because it helped her imagination, it makes her want to learn how to read. Right. My older daughter was getting the exact same benefit and she's learning about Queen Elizabeth. Right. And so for some reason, those two things combined in my brain, and I said, I'm going to create this book series for girls to get them interested in entrepreneurship, get them to open up that first lemonade stand or bake sale, and teach them some basic business skills, because I believe strongly that girls that have an entrepreneurial mindset are going to be more successful in life, whatever they choose. Right. So that was the inspiration, and it was the hardest and most humbling thing I've ever tried to do in my entire career. What was so hard about it? Well, I'm not a writer. I'm a business guy. So I have this idea, and I could have easily written the business plan or a press release, but to write, I I, I didn't know how to write. I didn't think I'd be the person to write the books at the end of the day, but I knew I had to get it down on paper to explain to someone what it was and test it with girls and those sorts of things. So the funny thing is, the the first thing I did is I went out and I bought writing children's books for dummies. It was the first, because I, I had to learn, and I spent three years of reading books about writing and taking writing classes and going to writing conferences and hiring freelance children's book editors to work with me to learn how to write. And I had some brutal rejection and brutal feedback along the way. I bet I'm getting but that right now in my books. <laughs> it, it, it's tough. It's, sometimes it's, it's tough to hear, but um, you know, the, I'm thankful that they were so brutally honest because it gave me this the kick in the pants I needed uh, to course correct at the time I needed it. But it took me three years to finally get that, uh, get that publishing deal. And then another two years for the, um, uh, for the first book to come out. And it's been, uh, now it's been great. The book is in the hands of girls and it is impacting their lives. I've met girls that have started their first businesses because they heard about the book or went to one of our events or, um, or saw me speak at their schools. Awesome. So people might say to you, but you're a dude. Like, why, why is a dude doing this? I get it. You know, you've got daughters and this is your cause. And I know I, I, I am, I consider myself a feminist because I have daughters. I think it, nothing turns you into a feminist than wanting to see your daughters succeed. Um, but, you know, why should girls be listening to a dude, a middle-aged dude, who, uh, to tell them about how to be an entrepreneur? So what we're trying to do is just get them inspired to want to do it themselves. Right. We want to just give them, give them those tools. Look, there are some fantastic women that are doing, uh, you know, focus on entrepreneurship for girls. There's unbelievable organizations that are working to change the workplace today for the better, for right. more gender equality. There's a ton of women that are doing great work. I'm doing this because it's something I want for my daughters, and it didn't exist. And I'm hopeful that the, the, all the work that, the, that these other women are doing to change the workplace today, that by the time my girls and your girls get to the workplace, it'll be a much better, much more receptive to, to what they have to offer. So why don't you tell me, you know, what are some of the tools these uh, girls need to learn at a young age? Yeah, so it's about the entrepreneurial mindset. So I, I'm not trying to create the next generation of female CEOs or founders. I mean, right. if we could do that, that would be great. But this is more about the way to think. The, the, I've seen my daughters, the things they've learned just from running a lemonade stand, it's, I call it the lemonade stand MBA. right. But it's a way of thinking. It's a way of being comfortable with risk. It's a way of seeing opportunities instead of problems. It's a way of having that grit and the growth mindset. 
And most importantly, to, to realize that failure isn't what happens when you don't succeed. Failure is what happens if you don't try in the first place. Right. That's, that's the entrepreneurial mindset. And I don't care what you're going to do when you grow up. If you've got that mindset, you're going to be more successful. And so start with a lemonade stand. Go out there and start to have to talk to people and look them in the eye and come up with a sales pitch. Right now, they're trying to convince someone to buy a cup of lemonade. But those same skills in life, they're going to be trying to sell one of their ideas to someone for right. themselves in a job interview. Those You get those same skills from selling a cup of lemonade, and it's the it, you know, girls love to do it, boys love to do it. And so what I'm trying to do with this book series is just go get them started to get them interested in doing that. And then we also give them some tools to be able to do it better. And then we, we, we're very focused on shouting about girl entrepreneurs that already have their own businesses yep. and using them as the aspiration. So you're starting with a lemonade stand now, but there's no reason why your lemonade couldn't be on the shelves of every supermarket across the country. Who are some of the women that you're using as inspiration to these young women? So uh, we, we've got CEOs, we've got we've got founders, we've got uh, lawyers, accountants. Um, we 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 actually just did this program with uh, Girls Inc. of New York City that you mentioned before. I feel strongly that I want to make sure that all girls have access to the entrepreneurial mindset, not just those who can afford to buy a copy of the book. Right. So I did this program with Girls Inc. of New York City, which is a fantastic organization. Great organization. They're fantastic. 65% of the girls that go through their program come from a family of house, household household income of $30,000 a year or less. Wow. That doesn't get you far in New York City. No. And so they're doing these programs. And so I want to make sure that those girls have access to the entrepreneurial mindset. So we just did a program where we raised money for Girls, Inc., and we're distributing 7,000 copies of the book awesome. to their girls. But at the same time, we want to give them some mentorship. So we collected some... What we asked a bunch of female leaders for advice for a girl opening up their first lemonade stand. And when we're providing that to the girls as well, so they get a little bit of mentoring while they get, while they get the, um, the book and a, a head start on their entrepreneurial journeys. That's awesome. That's awesome stuff. So let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, how society treats girls different than boys and how, you know, you're working with groups like Girls Inc. and through your book to try to break down some of those societal, you know, societal pressures that are, or societal forces, I should say, that are, are kind of driving women in a different direction than it might jo- drive men. Uh, I know, look, I mean, nobody had to teach me how to sell a newspaper. I was a newspaper carrier. I sold Newsday subscriptions all over Long Island when I was a little kid and uh, had paper routes and always was trying to sell something, you know, lawn services, whatever I could sell. My sisters, on the other hand, didn't. Maybe they would babysit if somebody called them. Um, so, what are what are some of the what are some of the societal forces that you're seeing out there and, and that you're coming up against that you're attempting to challenge? Well, I think for starting with girls, it's just it's just the influences. There are some fantastic stuff for girls. There's uh, a line of a lot of STEM related things. There's a line of toys called Goldie Blocks that that are fantastic, and um, we just bought my daughter a, a kit from a company called Little Bits. Uh, so there is some great stuff, but there should be more of it. I, I was talking to a, a mom the other day, and she said, my daughter prefers the boys' toys. They're building, and they're creating, and they're doing different things. Right. She just finds those things more interesting. So part of it is just giving girls more choice and more access. And look, my daughter, my youngest daughter, loves the, you know, the, the Disney princesses and the, and, the, and the fairy books and all those sorts of things. And that's fine. 
as long as she's got other options as well. And so, uh, and so that's a, that's a big thing starting from from early age. But certainly, you know, women in the workplace and gender equality is a big issue today. You know, one of the stats that blows me away is that there are more Fortune 500 CEOs named James than there are women. Wow. That's amazing. It's crazy. That's amazing. So there's there's definitely a lot of work to do, but as I said, there's some great organizations doing that work. But starting from a young age, just giving girls access to to other things that they might not have historically had access to and getting them excited about getting out there and starting those entrepreneurial journeys. What I was talking to a, um, there's a girl no, uh, that I, yeah, there's a girl that I met the other day who uh, loves to sew. She's been sewing for five years. It's her hobby and she loves to do it. She heard about the startup squad and the event we we're having. And for the first time in five years, started selling, came to our event and started selling her pillows and pillowcases. Wow. And they were, and they were beautiful. An hour after I met this girl, and she told me the story that this is the first time she'd ever sold it, sold these things, which blew me away. My wife comes up to me holding one of the pillows and says, "Look at this beautiful pillow I just bought." Nice. She had no idea. She had that this is the first time a girl had ever done it. That's awesome. So those are the ty- those are the types of things that we're trying to trying to instill and inspire in these girls. That's awesome. Now, what would you say to parents? You know, your parents a daughter, your child a, a parent of daughters. What should you be looking out for? Uh, to make sure that your daughter are daughters are receiving the proper encouragement to become more entrepreneurial. The the big thing is uh, so there's a uh, this the founder of Spanx, Sarah Blakely, has this great quote where she says she used to sit around the dinner table with her family and her father used to say to her, "What did you fail at this week?" And if she hadn't failed at anything that week, he'd be disappointed. Mm. But if she had failed at something that week, he would pat her on the back and he'd applaud her because he was trying to get her comfortable with that failure. Right. Just getting kids and especially girls comfortable with taking a risk and knowing that they're going to fail. I go and I speak at, spo- at, at schools now and I talk to them about famous people that failed. Mm. I tell them that when, when Beyonce was nine years old, she was on star search and she lost. Yeah. Michael Jordan got cut from his high school basketball yep. team. Bill Gates' first company was a total disaster. That failure isn't a big deal, and mm. you just got to go. You're gonna you're gonna take a risk, and so one of the things I have the kids repeat is instead of instead of saying win some lose some, I have the kids repeat with me win some learn some. Yeah. So to parents, I would say get them comfortable with failure. If they fail, if your kids fail at something, say that's awesome. What did you learn? What are you gonna do differently next time? I always and tell if, I, I always tell my yeah. daughter. My daughter's a soccer player. I always tell her before she goes out to play. Uh, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're, Absolutely. you're on a U 14 soccer to U 13. She'll be U 14 next week, next year. I mean, you're on a U 13 soccer field. You're not in the world cup. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And also, and then the other thing for parents is encourage your kids hobbies and try to see if there's an entrepreneurial bent to them. If your kid loves to, loves to bake, have them, you know, have them sell their cookies or cupcakes. If your kid loves arts and crafts, try to have them, um, you know, sell their, their paintings. It's so easy to do. There are, you know, first of all, Etsy is a, is a, a lot of kids are selling their products on Etsy. Adults obviously need to manage the account, but yep. a lot of kids are doing it. And there's also a great organization called the Acton Academy that runs hundreds of children's business fairs across the country every year. And so it's childrensbusinessfair.org. They've got a list of, of business fairs all across the country. I've been to five of them in the last six weeks here in California. And it's just amazing place for kids to be able to sell things for the first time 
and the easiest thing is just have them set up a lemonade stand in the front yard. Yeah, uh, that just just get them started. There's nothing like a lemonade stand, right? I mean, every every. I know I had one when I was a kid. It was uh, it was something we always tried to do every summer, try to make some money selling lemonade. Sometimes we get lucky and we would. <laughs> Sometimes we would just drink the lemonade. That's the way yeah. it works. It's a fun hobby. It's a it's a safe thing you could do with your kids. It's one of those things, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, that's uh, so you did a TED talk. You did other things. You're inspiring girls over the all over the country. You've got another book you're, you're in the middle of writing. Tell me, uh, you know, quickly and about I got about. 45 seconds left with you. You know, when's that coming out? What's going to be the topic of that? Yeah, so two things. So first of all, this the Startup Squad is a series. We're, we're doing a book every May, and so we're already working on, on book two. And the thing that, um, one of the things we do is to give girls a role model is in the back of each book, we feature a girl entrepreneur. And so next week, we're kicking off a national contest to try to find the girl entrepreneur that we're going to profile in the back of our second book. And where could people so, find that? Where could people get, you know, where could people go to, to, to give yep. information on that? Go to the startupsquad.com. We're going to have the information up next week. All you need to do is submit a one minute video about your girl talking about her business. And we'll, we'll have a, we'll have a gallery of these amazing girl entrepreneurs. And then in the fall, we'll have a public vote and pick the girl that we want to feature in, awesome. the, in, the, in the back of book two. Well, Brian Weisfield, that was a great interview. I look forward to reading this book completely, and I look forward to the next book. And thank you for what you're doing. Check them out, the start, startupsquad.com. Check out the book, The Startup Squad. Brian Westfield, Weisfield, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Chris. All right, I'm back. Hey, Brian, good guy. A lot going on. Smart guy. Really dedicated to what he's doing. So I think we're uh, lucky to have people like that who are just super smart. Who bring you know? Who have brought good things to this country? I mean, IMAX is awesome. I'm sorry, I enjoy it. I'm not doing a commercial for it, but Brian was part of the team that made that happen, so that you don't just have to go to the Smithsonian to see something in IMAX. You could see the Avengers in IMAX. You could see the new Star Wars movies in IMAX. It's fantastic. I mean, I if you haven't been to an IMAX movie, you got to go check it out uh, and check out his book, The Startup Squad. I think it's awesome. So uh, I think what he's doing is really good, and uh, I think it's fantastic. And I think you know, especially today where we, uh, we see what's going on in this country to empower women, young women, girls, let, make them think that or encourage them to think that they can do anything, that they could achieve anything, that they should be trying to, uh, to make things happen in an entrepreneurial sense is, is a good thing. So I think we need more of that in America, and I hope you'll check him out. All right, so it's going to be another consequential week. I think the debates are probably going to be the biggest thing, but of course, you know, when any when whenever somebody else gets any attention at all, Donald Trump wants to do something crazy to make that happen. Now, um, you know, he was going to send ice on raids across this country, tearing people out of their houses this weekend, this past weekend, but he got a call from Nancy Pelosi and then decided not to do it. So there's a two-week reprieve. So we'll see uh, if anything happens in that two weeks. You know, if ever there was a president that could get real immigration reform done, this is the guy. Because he, he'll he just claim victory for whatever happens. He should just take that bipartisan bill that passed the U.S. Senate back in, I think, 2013. And then, of course, John Boehner wouldn't bring it to the floor because he would have lost his speakership, which he gave up a couple of weeks later anyway. I I think President Trump should... Ask Congress for that bill. Make a few tweaks. That bill had $25 billion for border security. But it had a pathway to citizenship for the Dreamers. 
And it made a real system for bringing people into this country who want to be here for legitimate purposes, whether it be asylum, whether they're coming here for work on work visas. It acknowledged the market forces that are bringing people here. So uh, we've got two weeks to work on it. I don't know that anything's going to get done in those two weeks, but that would be a good place to start, Mr. President. And I know you and your team listen to my podcast. Uh, I know you see me on Fox. I know uh, I'll say this to you there too. So maybe bring that back and, and try to get it done for real. But we'll see. Everybody watch the debates. Check me out on Twitter at Christopher Hahn. I'll be watching those debates too, and I'll be talking about it on television at some point after it. And I'll be talking about it here next week on the Aggressive Progressive podcast. I really got to thank you all for supporting me these last couple of weeks. It's been a lot of fun doing this. Uh, and uh, I really am looking forward to the future. So tell a friend if you like it. Uh, get them to download and subscribe. And I got to remind you right now to seek the truth. Question everyone and everything, even me. Seek the truth, America. I know it's out there, and I know you'll find it if you look for it. And I'll be back here again next week to tell you the truth as I see it. I'm Chris Hahn. Thanks for listening to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. Hey, America, Christopher Hahn here, the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. What is with the president and the right-wing echo chamber encouraging these astroturf protests against stay-at-home orders around the country? It's ridiculous, and it needs to stop. Check out the Aggressive Progressive Podcast wherever you download podcasts. I'm Royal Oaks. Next time on Too Many Lawyers, COVID continues to reshape the law. Supreme Court arguments will be held by teleconference. The justices won't even know if the lawyers are wearing pants, which is fair given the eternal mystery of what's under those black robes. Los Angeles County is springing 25% of its inmates. The sheriff suggests folks get ready for what might be a spike in crime. Check it all out on the next episode of Too Many Lawyers.